Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, please do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be spending our time in this story of uh, Jonathan. Let's rearrange my books. Uh, you've already heard today we're having a special service of Thanksgiving for John T. And I decided to speak on the character that his name comes from, Jonathan. This is pretty unusual at our church. In fact, we've only done it once before in the last eight years, and that was funny enough for his older brother. So if you've only been to Grace Church twice, and you're friends of Mike and Mel, you may think this is what we always do, but we, we don't. His older brother has another Bible name, Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. But we don't do this for every Thanksgiving. However, if anybody has a son and decides to call him Melchizedek, let's talk. I've got a cracking idea for a sermon. Jonathan. The name means gift of God, or more literally in the Hebrew language, Yahweh has given. God has given. Jonathan tends to be overshadowed by his famous friend David, but as we look at his character today, I think we will find, as one scholar has said, that Jonathan's character glows. It glows. His courage, his integrity, his faith, and his outstanding love for David. And I think you will find, as I have, as I've studied and read and pondered this, that the character of Jonathan will challenge us all, whether you're a Christian or someone from another faith or a curious skeptic. He will challenge us all. You see, we are prone to evaluate ourselves and to think of other people in terms of performance. But the Bible says that God is much more interested in our character. It actually says these words, man, human beings, looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You see, we look at the performance of the outward appearance. God looks in on the heart. Now, all over this country in the last few weeks, nervous teenagers have been opening their exam results. And nervous parents have been sort of peering over their shoulder. First there was the A-levels, and then there was the GCSEs. What have I got? It feels like the whole of one's future is held in that envelope. Everyone is so concerned about their grades. But what about their character? You remember Martin Luther King's great speech, 1963, Washington Memorial, the, the I Have a Dream speech. Do you remember this line? I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. King was right. Character, not results, is so important. Friends, you may have got 10 A stars. But do you have integrity? You may have got one C and two Ds, but are you kind? Young people here, you teenagers, some of you got your results. In 30 years' time, no one will remember your exam results. Maybe you won't even remember them. But everyone will see your character. What will you be like? And so today we're going to look at the character of this guy, Jonathan, and three things jump out 
as you read the whole story, and you read it in the biggest story of the whole Bible, Jonathan is a gift, he's a friend, and he's a picture. He's a gift, a friend, and a picture. First of all, a gift. He's a gift of God. That's the meaning of his name. Now, to understand why Jonathan was such a great gift to his people and his country, you have to know a bit about the history and the backstory, and especially about his dad, Saul. And so we're going to wind the clock back here, or blow the mists of ancient history, look back through time to the nation of Israel as it was originally founded. Uh, it was founded as a theocracy. That is, it was to be ruled by God without a human king. Now, these Hebrew people, eventually called the Israelites, had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, where they'd been cruelly oppressed, in the mid-2nd century BC. So the mid-2nd century BC is three and a half thousand years ago. And they'd been rescued by mighty acts of God. God had actually brought them out through miraculous means. They came through the Red Sea. The waters parted. They came through on dry land. They were free, like the old uh, spiritual song. Thank God Almighty, free at last. And God led them out, and he led them through the wilderness to a promised land, a beautiful place. It was called a land flowing with milk and honey. And they were given a distinct mission. They were to be like a light to the nations around. God said this of them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, royal priests, and a holy nation. So they were supposed to be holy, morally pure, and set apart and different from the world. And again and again, as God teaches them in the Old Testament how to be a nation, he says, do not be like the peoples around. Don't copy their lifestyle. Don't copy their religion. Do not be like them. But they constantly failed in the mission. There was a constant tendency to try and live and copy the other peoples around. Like an insecure teenager who lacks confidence in her own identity, Israel copied the people around. And then they demanded that they should have a king. Remember, God was supposed to be their king. They said, no, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. Everyone else has a king. Why can't I have Nike trainers? You know, I, we want a king too. And God spoke to them through the prophets. He said, hold on, think about this. Don't ask for this. Don't you know what kings are like? Don't you know what a king means? I'll tell you what a king means. Income tax. Didn't have it before. This is what a king will do. God warned them a king's going to take uh, money off you and he's going to build up his own palace. And he'll build himself a whole private army. He'll live in luxury. Then he'll need, have to raise taxes. You know how it works. But they insisted, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. They all have a king. And they spat their dummy out. So God gave them what they asked for. A king. Just like the other nations. And the first king's name was Saul. Now, here's a sidebar. This is kind of a, a, a useful reminder to us to be careful what we ask God for, because you might get it. We think we want this, this, and this, and we pursue it and ask God for it. Well, be careful, you might get it. Someone has once said, the doors of hell are locked and bolted from the inside. People have chosen it. Saul was just what they'd asked for. He was a king just like the other nations. We would say he was an alpha male. Saul stood out in a crowd. You couldn't miss him. 
You know, he came in the room. He had that kind of magnetism some people have. He was big and tall. In fact, it says he was head and shoulders taller than other men. We used to have a guy like this in the church, Jordan Fast, six foot eight Canadian guy. Seeing my wife give him a, a hug on a Sunday morning was always funny. My wife's five foot two. She'd give him a nice kiss on the tummy. And Jordan Fast, head and shoulders. Oh, wow, that's the kind of king we want. Mind you, Jordan Fast was a great guy. He's not like Saul in any other ways, I hasten to say. Wow, stature. We're going to really stand tall and proud now. We're going to have national stature, a seat at the table, a place in the world. Or so they thought. But the reality was that Saul was a deeply flawed character. Experience of great power and responsibility turned his head. He started out okay, but at the critical moment, he did not trust God. He did not depend on God. He took matters into his own hands. He blatantly disobeyed God's clear command. And then he was confronted by Samuel the prophet, and he blamed his own soldiers and said it was they, they did it. Sound familiar? It's just that like Adam, a previous ruler, who also lacked faith and blamed others. So Saul disobeyed God, and he was unfit to rule. Now, this is why Jonathan's such a great gift. Get your Bible, will you, and turn to page 283. Uh, this is, um, if you're not using the church Bible, it's 1 Samuel Chapter 14, 1 Samuel 14. This is uh, after Saul has really blown it. And here is Jonathan, his son. This is just a great story. I wish I could read it all, but uh, 1 Samuel 14. Uh, now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Sounds like Mishmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. And then skip down to um, verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sener. One cliff stood to the north towards Mishmash, the other to the south towards Gebar. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. So there's only two guys going here, right? So this armor bearer, he's crazy. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We'll cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because this will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. They think they're deserting. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. With his armor bearer right behind him, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Wow! This is like boys' own stuff. What a hero! Two guys taking on the whole garrison. Such bravery, such faith. And the Philistines are kind of routed. They're panicked. What's going on? And the whole of the Israelite army gains confidence, and they push back. And they push them out. Now, a lot of countries have got a story in their history where a small group takes on a much bigger force. You know, we have Agincourt. Apologies to our French friend here. 
But, you know, it was a good moment for us, Seb. Um, this is one of those moments for Israel. It's a turning point. Thanks to Jonathan, the nation enjoyed a great period of safety. In Jonathan, the people see a leader that they can trust, a man of great integrity, courage, leads by example, and someone of faith. Notice how he says it's the Lord will give us rescue. But as the story goes on, his dad, Saul, looks more and more unstable, volatile, and imbalanced. I'm not going to make any comparisons with other world leaders who are unstable, volatile, and imbalanced. You might be able to think of some. We already prayed about North Korea. Now, you might expect that this could all make a kind of neat ending to the story. Saul died. Jonathan became king. And everyone lived happily ever after. And the only question that would remain is this. Who's going to play Jonathan in the film version? Tom Cruise? Russell Crowe? Let's go up and take them on. How great he looked. He seemed destined for greatness. He just had to reach out and take it. The world was his oyster. He just had to wait. He's the crown prince. But that was not God's plan. Because that is not God's way. There's this thread that runs all the way through the Bible. If it was a tapestry, it'd be like a colored thread that runs all through. And it's this. Uh, the living God is a God of unexpected reversals. He, in cultures that always favor the eldest son, God would choose the younger. He chooses the poor nobody, the marginalized person, instead of the powerful somebody. He, get, he takes the weak and the foolish, and he actually shames the strong and the wise. Why does he do it? So that God gets all the glory, not people. And in the book of Samuel, God's plan was for another king, an obscure shepherd boy. His name was David. Now, he, he wasn't the first son of his family or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth. He's actually the seventh son, so he's about as far down the pecking order as you can get. In fact, when the prophet goes to the house, they call out the other six sons first of all, and they leave him out in the field. No one's going to want to talk to him. Keep him out there, he's a shepherd, you know. No name, no connections. And God sends the prophet, choose him, select him, anoint him as the king. He will be king. God gives the promise to David. But look, that means the promise doesn't go to Jonathan. Promise doesn't go to Jonathan. And so when God told Saul through the prophet that his kingdom would be taken away and it would be given to another one, one after God's own heart, everybody knew about it, including Jonathan. And later on, when the people were being oppressed by their enemies, the Philistines, it looked as if they were going to lose. The Philistines were going to smash them and trash their culture and bring them into slavery. See, the Philistines had a weapon of mass destruction. He was called Goliath. He was this gigantic man, big, big, savage warrior, undefeated man. And he came out every day and challenged the whole army, and they cowered. Even the king was cowering in his tent. Saul was cowering, wanting his mum. And in the middle of this scene of national shame and disgrace, the tables are turned by this young shepherd boy who shows up. He's too small even to wear the armor. He says, just let me go out as I am. And he says, there's a great story. I won't have time to retell it. He sees the situation with eyes of faith, and he says, God will rescue me from his hand. 
The Lord will rescue me from his hand. And this young, probably teenager, David, with just a sling and a few shiny smooth stones, goes and slings a stone and kills the giant enemy and defeats the Philistines. And there's a rout, and the Philistines once again are, are driven away. But you see what just happened? David did what Jonathan had done earlier, only on a much bigger scale. This clearly poses a threat to Jonathan, doesn't it? He's being put in the shade. How is he going to respond? How would you? This leads me to the second point about Jonathan. I've said he's a, a gift of God, but the second point, he, for the thing for which he's famous, he's a friend of David, a great friend, a great friend. But as we think about friendship and about David and Jonathan, I want to just ask you a question. Um, what kind of a friend are you? What kind of friend are you? Would you say you are a true friend? Would you say you're a true friend? Let me ask you, how do you feel when your friend is taller, slimmer, more attractive, gets more looks and more attention than you? How do you feel when your friend is noticeably richer? Or they start off poorer than you, but then they become richer. How do you feel when your friend is conspicuously more successful? They get the things you always wanted. They get a bigger salary, better job, a higher status. How do you feel when your friend buys the dream house? And they're still in that small flat. How do you feel when your friend got married? Uh, or, or your friend has a baby? Or your friend's exam results were that much better? How do you feel? Do you celebrate with them or inwardly grieve? Gore Vidal once said, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. Are you a true friend? What about when your friend disappoints you or even hurts you deeply? What about when your friend is neglectful and you feel you're, you're the one that's always chasing? What about when your friend confronts something about you that you didn't want to hear or your friend offends you? What kind of a friend are you? You know, we all want true friends. I wonder if we are committed to being true friends. But look at Jonathan. Just think about what he had. He was royalty. Talk about status. He's the eldest son of the royal family in a traditional culture. He's the crown prince. Inheritance, what riches he has to look forward to. He can raise taxes anytime he likes. He lives in a palace. Fame and glory, he'd won a great battle. Just him and his armor bearer, remember? He turned the tide. Talent, he's a gifted warrior. People looked at him, he's a natural leader. He's going to be king one day. And then, along comes David. And all of it slips away. David is much younger, maybe 20 years younger, and he's very handsome. He's known for his good looks. David quickly becomes more famous, and his popularity eclipses Jonathan. David wins the epic victory over Goliath, and Jonathan's heroism is quickly forgotten. People are singing songs about David. David is chosen by God to be the king. That means the end of Saul's line, Jonathan is out. Now, how would you feel when such a person just waltzes into your life? There's two kinds of reaction to that, and they are neatly illustrated by Saul. 
the king and by Jonathan, his son. Have, turn with me over the page uh, to chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6 to 12. This is Saul's reaction. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6 to 12. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, joyful songs, and with tambourines and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, listen to this song, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house. David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Now, here's the thing. See the pattern? Anger at someone else's success. Anger. Burning anger. Insecurity. Jealousy. And then fear. What else can he take from me? And then paranoia. Do you know those feelings when someone else's success threatens you? Of course you do. I do. Anger, fear, jealousy. But just look at Jonathan. Now, this is absolutely breathtaking. Look back at the beginning of the chapter 18. Absolutely breathtaking. This is how Jonathan responds when he sees the greatness of David. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. What is he doing? Jonathan sees the greatness of David, this younger guy. He sees this is God's chosen king. He knows it's the end of his own personal ambition, and he loves him as much as he loves himself. And why does he give him the royal robe and the sword and the bow? Why does he do that? He's acknowledging David as king. He's saying, you will be the leader. You will be the great one. You take the sword. You'll defend the people. You take the royal robe. You'll be invested one day with that. I will decrease, David, but you will increase. And I want you to know I've got your back. And, you know, Jonathan is true to this. As the story rolls on, Saul becomes more and more angry and paranoid about David. He wants him killed. And Jonathan is loyal to both of them. To both of them, because David is being forced to walk an ethical tightrope. On the one hand, Saul is the lawful king, and so David mustn't commit treason or provoke uh, civil war. On the other hand, he fears for his life. The guy carries a spear around and occasionally he just throws it at someone. Fits of rage. Jonathan's in the middle of these two, caught between his father and his best friend. Just think how he could have responded. He could have said, he could have been jealous. He could have said, you know, how dare this young upstart from the sticks, come in here. He could have used the situation to, to get rid of David and secure power for himself. Or he could have given in to fear. He could have said, my father's lost it. He's violent and powerful. I, I'm just going to roll over. I can't help David. He's on his own now. I've got to think about myself and my family. But he does neither of those things. He chooses this third way. He walks the tightrope of honoring the king and protecting David. And it comes 
head to head in that scene that, that we read earlier on, where Saul, by this stage, is playing a game of cat and mouse. He's pretending that he's friends with David. He wants him there at the feast. All the while, he's waiting for his moment to pounce and kill him. It's like a scene from The Godfather. You know, we're waiting for something to happen, and it's all tense, and Saul's kind of menacing, but pretending it's all fine. And Jonathan risks everything. He makes the, this secret deal. He goes, says, you hide in the fields. I'm going to come out and fire the arrows, and I'll let you know if, you know, if it's going to be safe for you or not. And he risks everything, and he, he, he makes his excuses. He goes to the field to warn David with the signal, and he says, you, you, you know, it isn't safe. Brother, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get out of here. And in chapter 20, let me just turn back to that. The two friends meet and weep. The end of the chapter, end of verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Why do they weep? They don't know if they will ever see each other again. But David weeps the most. Why? Could it be that he knows how excellent this friend is and what pain he has caused him? David goes free. Jonathan goes back to the town to cover for him to the place of danger. What a friend. What a friend. Not much more is heard about him in the Bible. He was loyal to the crown and he stood by his father in battle and he he lost his life fighting to defend his father. And when David heard it, he was filled with grief and he wrote this, this uh, song. How, might, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful even than that of women. Jonathan, gift of God, friend of David. What a name you've given to this little guy. Jonathan, a friend. But what is true friendship? What is its nature? There's a classic study by Professor C.S. Lewis. I've got a lovely 1960s copy of it here called The Four Loves. Professor Lewis wrote about affection and eros, or romantic sexual love, friendship and charity. And he said that to ancient people, friendship seem to be the happiest uh, uh, and most fully human of all loves. It was the crown of life and the school of virtue. And he mentions one of the great examples of friendship is David and Jonathan. So what is, what is the heart of true friendship? Lewis says that romantic love, or eros, involves the lovers desiring each other and looking into each other's eyes and discovering one another face to face as it were. But friendship is a different kind of love. In friendship, the friends are not looking into each other's eyes, discovering each other. They are side by side, looking at something else and discovering that. Lewis says this, lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. True friendship is the least jealous of loves. The least jealous. Friendship starts when people discover that they have something in common, some interest, something they love to do, some, some uh, taste or, or other. And a typical ex expression in a start of a friendship would be something like this. What? You too? 
I thought I was the only one. He says that in this kind of love, do you love me? Means, do you see the same truth? Or even, do you care about the same truth? That's why, says Professor Lewis, people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we want something else besides a friend. Now, this insight, I think, helps us to understand David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan saw a truth together. They, they cared about a, a truth that was bigger than friendship. They did not care most deeply about each other. They cared most deeply about the glory of the living God. That God should be made much of. That God should be loved and given the greatest honor and worth. That's why they were such heroic guys. Because when they were faced with huge odds and obstacles and enemies, they, they, they just thought, well, God has got to be much bigger than this. Come on, how can this enemy stand in the way of God? And so they, were, they had the courage, not from themselves, but from their belief in God. So the secret of Jonathan's great character, of his gift of friendship, was that there was something bigger than his name, something bigger than his glory, his potential, his fame. It was this, the name, the glory, the rule, the fame of God. That's what drove him. That's what made him a great friend. And knowing God meant that Jonathan could walk away from greatness. He could walk away because he already had God. What else did he need? So what about you? Is there something that keeps you from true friendship? Is it that you, you kind of crave friendship to fill the emptiness inside? The friend feels used. Is it that friendship is ultimately all about you and filling your needs? Now, you can tell if this is happening, I think, when you feel constantly insecure about your friends, when you're easily offended by them, when you're highly critical of them, or when your conversations are all about you and you never ask a question. Such friendships are destined to fail, but there is a better way. And it's the way that comes through knowing the living God and him meeting all your needs. And that's why I want to finish with this final thought about Jonathan, which is this. Firstly, he's a gift of God. Secondly, he was a, a, a friend of David. And thirdly, I said he was a picture. A picture of whom? Or is it who? Who is he a picture of? He's actually a picture of Jesus Christ. I said at the start that there was a scholar who described Jonathan's character as glowing. This scholar's name is Peter Lightheart. Here's the full quote. The Bible, usually so succinct, tells about the parting of Jonathan David in considerable detail. And the scene lingers on the page and in the mind. Two sons of Saul, twins in their devotion to God and in their courage, separated. Even in this last major scene, the character of Jonathan glows. He returns to his father's doomed house, virtually disappearing from the text, not thinking equality with David something to be grasped, but making himself of no account. Some of you know what that's hinting at. You see, what Jonathan did is, a, in a very small way, a small picture of what Jesus Christ did on a cosmic scale. The New Testament says that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God 
something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Jesus, the one true prince, the one true son of God, was at home in the glory and splendor and majesty of heaven, and yet he surrendered all of that and made himself of no account. Even now, millions of people in this world disregard him and even despise his name. The name of Jesus and Christ is used as a common swear word. But Jesus gave it all up, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, and the joy was his friends. Christian people, the joy was you. Jesus gave it up for you. He went to the cross for you. John's gospel, he used this amazing words. My command is this, he says to his followers, love each other as I have loved you, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. There's the true role model. Not Jonathan, as great as he was, but Jesus Christ, the one who gave up everything for his friends, who laid down his life, and although he's worthy of all praise and worship, doesn't insist on us, doesn't call us servants, but calls us friends. He, he gave up everything for us. There's no greater love than his. Do you know it? Have you experienced the love of Jesus Christ being made real to your heart? Now, the only fitting response when we've seen such love is to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And that will make us a gift. And that will make us great friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read these ancient stories from a time and a place so far from where we are, but there's, there are things in them that resonate with us because people are the same, hundreds, even thousands of years later. And we realize in this story that there's an example of, of, of a man who uh, was able to be a true friend. He was set free to be a true friend because he knew you. Uh, he knew you, and that enabled him to give up his throne, his name, his reputation, his ambition, and to be free in it to serve somebody else. But we're so far from that. But we thank you that you don't give up on us. You're very patient. And we thank you that you love us. You loved us so much you sent Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, you sent him. How deep the Father's love for us, that he should send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So thank you for... Jesus, thank you for the community of faith that you're building here. Thank you for Jonathan, Luke, Fernando, and his family. We pray that you bless us all now in his name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.